بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Taala and we seek blessings on the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. All right, what fasting number is this? Is this number thirteen? Today fourteen. It is fourteen. Oh, so we're literally just about at the midpoint. Okay, very very much. All righty. So continuing where we left off. Yesterday's discussion for, and I'm sorry for those of you who've been trying to follow the recordings, the, for whatever bizarre reason, I think I turned off the recording rather than turn it on. And, and so just to recap, we looked at Ayah 6 of Ali Imran yesterday, taking it piece by piece and then constructing, deriving meaning by putting all the pieces together. And so that's essentially the common approach that when we are often reading through the text in our normal practices, when there's passages about Allah, because we feel we already know everything we need to know, or we feel that nothing new is being taught when we're told that Allah is the all of something, it's easy to bypass those ayahs. But uh, we've been looking at those ayahs as though they are central and everything is built around them. And so, So he's the one who formed you in the wombs the way he liked, la ilaha illahu al azizul hakim, and so so there is no god but him. He is the Aziz, the majestic, the great, the mighty, and then he is the hakim, the wise. And then we put all those together to develop this understanding that the form we've been given, or all the attributes we've been given, or the fact that we've been given form uh, in our mother's wombs, was an act of wisdom, was an act of <coughs> of astounding creation and then it comes there's some obligations that come with it when we finished off making the point that you have such an astonishing high value just by view of the fact that allah has created you but then there's a corresponding level of obligation to live up to to live your life up to your worth and the analogy i gave suppose you get the the nicest luxury car you can but you are absolutely poor in its maintenance, you get the cheapest gas, cheapest oil, cheapest everything, and you use it to transport fertilizer. That's beneath the, the, the value of, of the car. And so part of the exercise was appreciating our own innate value, especially in this era uh, where we have increasing nihilism or nihilism, you know, the idea that just nothing matters. So having said that, let's get into the next ayah. So once again, nod to let me know that you can see the, the Quran on your screen. You're very good. At least make me feel good that I'm not technologically 100% illiterate. Okay. So this is a very, very famous ayah that many of you are probably already familiar with anyway. <laughs> so he is the one who sent down on you, meaning the Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, the book, the Kitab, and from it are muhkamats ayat. So there are categorical ayahs. And those are, here in the language, those are the mother of the book, the foundation of the book. Wa and then there's others that are allegorical. 
And so again, I think most of you are familiar with this this uh, this ayah because it comes up in many many subjects related to interpretation. So we have at least two different types of ayahs: those that are categorical and those that are allegorical. And then, as for those who have some sort of a sickness, or here the translation is perversity, some sort of sickness in their hearts, they are trying to give meaning to the allegorical. Out of a desire to sow discord by way of their desire to provide interpretation. And then, and we probably won't, this whole ayah itself will probably take us a couple of days to, to explore, but, and, and then those who, and no one knows the interpretation except for Allah. And we're going to see something interesting about the punctuation here. And those firm in knowledge, they say, we believe in it. All of it, all of it is from our Lord. And, and so, and no one will take heed, except for the people of understanding. So lots of material in the side, lots of very, very rich material. And, and so, turning this off. And switching to our whiteboard that I like to use as much as I possibly can. Gives me purpose in life. Okay, so, so the first question to consider. So Allah Ta'ala says that he sent down unto you the Prophet, peace be upon him, the Kitab. And so we've spoken before about when we see the words Kitab as opposed to Quran that we will try to revisit. But two types of ayahs. Okay, so we have the categorical, and then we have the allegorical. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you go through all of the Hadith literature, you find very little explanation, if any. I'm trying to remember a single Hadith narration at the moment where the prophet, peace be upon him, says this is categorical or this is an allegorical ayah. So how do we determine if an ayah is categorical or if an ayah is allegorical? And so categorical, I mean clear. And then allegorical means vague. Right? I mean, allegorical is better than saying vague. Any thoughts? Or let me reframe this. <clears throat> what would be some ayahs that you would consider to be either one or the other? Like uh, God ascended the throne. Okay, so which one would that be? Uh, that would be allegorical. So you're saying it's allegorical. It sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? Yeah. What do you think? It does. Um, but I mean, it has to, based on what we know about God, like, doesn't it have to be a relation? Or is that... What does that mean? Um, like, we know that God does not have a form, a physical form. Okay. Okay, here, uh, so here, once again, here, I'm already here. Okay, here, we have a Dr. Omer student right here. Okay, keep going. Mashallah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, I mean, basically what I'm saying is that some verses that have uh, any indication or that, you know, might uh, kind of what contradict the, that God is formless Okay. Um, 
will then fall into the allegorical category. Mm -hmm. So, so the whole line of argument would be that there is nothing like a law, which means that if anything is describing the form of a law, then it would be by definition allegorical. Yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts? How do we figure out if an ayah is categorical or allegorical or what would be an example of either or? <clears throat> and I'm saying, I'm even thinking, think of the easiest examples you can think of. Yeah, awesome. Wouldn't al-Fatiha be categorical? Okay, so uh, the whole thing, or are you resetting the whole thing through your head? Yeah, I am. <laughs> I think so. I think the whole thing is categorical. Okay, so straight path would be a literal path, or would it be an allegory? Well, I, I'm. I think the operative part of that sentence is the guide us. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. I think that is categorical. The straight path part is allegorical, but I think that uh, what I get, and I guess that's that's the inherent point here, right? Is that um, it might be a matter of perspective. Okay. Well, I mean, so there's ambiguity in figuring out what is and is not ambiguous. Uh, what about okay? What would be an even easier passage? Or type of passage. Those, if you're about to say something, uh, the verse is related to law, like um, pretty categorical. Okay, so I'm uh, uh, sorry, the uh, you know uh, lashes and so forth. Okay, so when it's saying to cut off the hands of the thief, it means amputation as opposed to put them in prison, because putting them in prison would be cutting off their hands. I mean, further explanation for sure is, is necessary. Fiqh okay. comes into play, but uh, I generally see those as mohkam verses. Like those are. Okay. okay. All right. Uh, Nilofer says uh, nur ala nur. So, so that would be allegorical. And so, so then how do we understand light as an allegory? Is it then just light equals guidance and guidance upon guidance? Yeah. What do you think? Uh, so like, what is light an allegory for? Sure. I mean, if we're saying that I is an allegory, um, because we're saying that Allah is nur, but then we're also saying the Quran is nur. And, and so, you know, obviously I'm not gonna say Allah is the Quran, but you see the, 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 the issue with the use of light, or maybe that is how an allegory actually works. I'm I'm confused now, but okay. Uh, let's see. We got uh, let's see, Dr. Ghazi and then Noor. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say maybe the only uh, non-allegorical verse verses in the Quran would be uh, that have to say, that state la ilaha illallah. So Everything I would say, say as a foundation of the text, we're everybody would agree. I mean, you're always going to have the outliers would be one God. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you all think? And now a point to think about is that if something is categorical, we can also potentially read it as allegorical. But can you think of a way to read no God but Allah as allegorical? 
Not that I will get to know. I think that's harder to, to think of as allegorical, but part of it could be our own bias in terms of how we understand that. Uh, Noor. Yeah, I was more. just going to give Noor another I got really thing. happy when, when Nilofer was talking about the Ayat Noor, but anyway. <laughs> I was just going to give a, a, an example that I thought would be a categorical ayah, um, uh -huh. verse 15 of Al-Ahqaf, especially okay. in the beginning, uh, commanding, like we have commanded people to honor their parents. Okay. Um, and just because I feel like that's, you know, a foundational part of my life, but also like I've discussed this ayah with you multiple times and like it also includes like the prayer of gratitude, which I, okay. I feel is also pretty clear. Okay. So, so I'm guessing I'm hearing part of the point about the ayah is that there is an instruction and, and it's something that's very easy to read categorically. And uh, it might even be kind of hard to read allegorically. Okay. Uh, I don't know if it's Rossi or Ahant. I'm going to guess it's Ahant. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's me. Um, I mean, is the point here that, um, that the, the perverse at heart will make the categorical allegorical according to their whims and fancies? Okay, so we haven't even gotten that far yet, uh, but that will be part of our exploration. So <clears throat> essentially... How do we determine? Part of it is going to be how to, so I'm saying how is and how to determine. In fact, let's uh, make a big line here. Look at those nastiest line, second nastiest line in the history of this week. Okay. So how, I mean, one is going to just relate to the grammar of the text, so the grammar of a passage. And the grammar of, of any passage is pretty much the foundation of the vast majority of all the Islamic sciences. So Islamic theology rests on Arabic grammar. Islamic law rests on Arabic grammar. Islamic spirituality often rests on Arabic grammar. So that's often going to be a big part of it. And so what we're basically saying is, is the language itself clear? Is the language hazy? And then a lot of it is literally, essentially, collective understanding. So, so to Dalsif's point about the ayahs, uh, for example, of, of the punishments, the hudud punishments, yeah, the collective understanding, the overwhelming majority understanding is that those are literal. In the reference that Nilofer gave to the uh, Ayat al-Nur, yeah, the overwhelming understanding is that this is uh, allegorical. The easiest example of something that it would not be categorical would be the ayahs like Alif Lam Mim, right? How do you how do you even read that categorically? You know, so it's like at one end we have one God, and at the other hand we have Alif Lam Mim Hamim, and then everything else somewhere in between, and. <clears throat> And there's also going to be a certain amount of, for lack of a better word, we're going to call it honest intuition. Meaning part of what I was doing when I was pushing back was giving sort of academic uh, problematizing, saying, well, what about this? What about that? But innately, okay, if the IS has cut off their hands, the default understanding is going to be that this is, this is literal. And if the IS says God has delighted the heavens and the earth, uh, 
and you know light upon light and so forth and so on we're going to by default most likely read that as as uh, allegorical and this is a big part of of your exploration with the text and i bring this up especially uh, more so for our type of crowd here as opposed to many other parts of the world at this time that uh, there is a common notion today to try to academicize everything as opposed to just looking at your real world experience and the collective understanding will often be in disagreement you know so it is a minority opinion that cutting off the hands includes putting someone in prison and then there is a school of theology related to late's point earlier on uh, that we do actually take those attributes of a law as literal that he has hands that he has a throne the majority opinion is we say bila kaif, that uh, he has hands and a throne, but we don't know what it actually means. So then we might read them as, as metaphors. So the fact that he has hands is often read as a metaphor for power. The fact of a throne is often read as a metaphor for majesty and such. Uh, Sadia. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, somebody might have already mentioned it, but I was late. So I just thought we can also look at the cutting off ties with your relatives. So that also sounds like metaphorical, like allegorical instead mm. of clear. So kind of like cutting off hands. So I was thinking about the yeah, two. Yeah. You broke up for a little bit. You said I was thinking about it and then you broke up. Oh, I was quiet. I was thinking oh. about the two. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, because okay, okay. like, um, so maybe cutting off the hand could also be taken as allegorical. I mean, again, possibly. And so what it basically comes down to is how does, you know, this particular person or this particular population read it? And so then that gives up, gives birth to the schools of interpretation. So whether we're speaking of the schools of law, the schools of theology, the schools of spirituality, whatever the case may be, what is the literal idea of the school? It's to have consistency in how we interpret things. And so on the one hand, how do we interpret grammatical forms to determine if something is clear or hazy? And then likewise, you know, if it's being mentioned X number of times or this way or that way. That's so uh, whether we're speaking of the schools of law, they're basically schools of interpretation seeking consistency interpretation. If we're speaking of the schools of theology, Ashari, Athari, Maturidi, they're seeking to be consistent in interpretation. And then the, the different Sufi schools, Sufi networks, in their core, same principle. You know, it's to have consistency interpretation. But the key point I also want you all to focus on is you know what is the text saying to you is it something literal is it something allegorical and so then in terms of the practice of islam and now ahant this is getting to your question oh by the way Leith, i think your inheritance example is a good example you know that uh, it's kind of hard to read that as allegorical with all the detail okay <clears throat> so so then we have the next part of the ayah or within the first part of the ayah, it says that the categorical are the foundation of the book. So, 
So then going back to this screen, the categorical, the wording is interesting, Umul Kitab. What else is Umul Kitab used for? Fatiha. Al Fatiha. So now we have two aspects in our understanding of the text. One is that Al Fatiha is the flashlight through which to look at the rest of the text. And then at another level, those ayahs that seem to be clear. So, you know, the question that I often pose is, is can you tell me what are the first, second, third, fourth, fifth commands? When we start from the first page of the book, those of you who've taken my classes, you've heard this question from me 600,000 times. But I don't mean what are the first commands that the Prophet, peace be upon him, received. But when I open up Al-Fatiha and I go through Al-Baqarah, ask yourself, can you identify what is the fifth command? or the fourth command, or the third, or the second, or even the first. And, and that'll also give you a sense of the approach you've been taking in terms of, of reading the text, is those would be some categorical ayahs, even if the detail of the command is not clear. So for example, anyone, what's the very first command we come across when we open up the book? First, let's start with people who, who haven't taken you know, these classes with me 600,000 times. Anyone? Yeah, see, it's funny seeing all your smiles. Yeah, I already know this one. So I'll repeat the question. Those who have not taken my classes, can you tell us when I open up from the first page of the text, what is the first command? Yeah. All right. Other people? Past students? Anyone? I'm going to guess the Iyak and Arbudu. I'm a little lost from us, but that's okay. Okay, so so that would be not a command, though. But That's why I'm actually lost. I do know my Arabic commands, but you're stating the first command coming in with Al-Fatiha, is that right? So there's no commands in Al-Fatiha. I mean, the closest thing we have is us giving Allah a command, guide us in the straight path. Yeah. But no commands that Allah is giving us. So yeah, Ulfat got it. So this is in, in Surah Al-Baqarah. This is around page three of Surah Al-Baqarah, Ayah 21. Be the abd of your Rabb. Ya ayyuhannas u'budu rabbakum. And so there's an instruction, which we can read as categorical, although it isn't specifically defining specific actions. It's more defining a disposition to have. Uh, Olpa, you wanna you wanna go for extra credit? You wanna give us a second command? I'm only taking twenty classes for me. I don't remember the second command, man. Do not make associations. Okay, so do not make rivals to Allah. Yeah. Do not knowingly make rivals to Allah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very good. So, what are we saying here then? What is being prescribed now? in terms of the process of developing a relationship with Allah, of getting closer to Allah, is that we, we, we identify for ourselves, is this verse something clear or is this verse something allegorical? And so one level of clarity will be when Allah is talking about the existence of things, starting with his own existence. But then we also have, there's a day of judgment 
There is, for example, in the nation of Islam, those passages are looked at as allegory, that there is no day of judgment. When you're dead, you're dead. Otherwise, in, in Sunni Islam, Shia Islam, etc., etc., that's looked at as the most real of real things, more real than our physical existence here. And so what we're saying is that is I'm constructing my Islam Now, why am I using this language? I made the point a couple of classes ago that every every seven to 10 years, you need to re-understand, redefine, repackage your Islam. And so I'm actually giving you tools, inshallah, for, for, for when you're going through certain struggles, like Islam is not working for me. So, so we have categorical level one as the foundation, which would be the existence and priority of things and i don't like using things for a love or for lack of a better purpose or for lack of a better word at the moment a lot of the day of judgment your own existence etc etc et and that's where we're talking about your relationships that the core of this is what is my relationship with Allah? What is my relationship, my consciousness of the day of judgment? And then level two is very often instructions. And so what I'm suggesting is that we often skip level one for level two. Right, that's been the theme overall throughout the entire uh, throughout the entire two weeks so far. And so, all along, I'm still saying instructions are important you know, because I mean we're going to be held to account for 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 many of them. But think of that as level two, first establishing your relationships with everything. But then, what becomes the purpose of the allegorical? So let's take a step back. What's the purpose in general of allegory or metaphor? Anyone? Whether we're talking about Quran, whether we're talking about literature, conversation, anything. To comprehend something beyond yeah. comprehensible. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's it's to help me comprehend things. And so what we're then saying is that level three, the allegories. are to help me with one and two, but especially with one. We have two as well, right? You know, so there are some people like a, cow, a dog that's panting and you give it instructions and it's still panting and you don't give it instructions, it's still panting. So we will have those allegories, but the vast majority of allegories are help us to comprehend our relationship with the law. And so, so this is, uh, to put this in a different color, in terms of the common practice of Islam, that here is where we often find the unorthodox Sufis. By saying unorthodox, I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just saying that they're not orthodox. And then here is where we find much contemporary madrasa learning. 
So uh, anyone want to guess what is the most common uh, action or thick related question I've been getting this week, even though it's only Monday? Anyone want to guess? What yeah. breaks your fast? So am I allowed to break my fast? Am I allowed to skip my fast for, for, for finals, you know, for the MCAT, all those things, right? And my knee-jerk response, because I'm a grumpy old man, is to say, all right, your generation is so tough on everything except for fasting. The Battle of Badr was, was during Ramadan. And back then, we used to fast when it was summertime three years ago. You know, and you guys are all weak, right? But I started second-guessing myself that I literally started contacting scholars all over the city, all right? How do you answer this question? And the younger scholars all said, okay, that's weak. You know, the older scholars would either say, no, nope, sorry, still got to fast, or they would give me these really wise answers, which I think are actually very wise, that, all right, if you're going to your test, take water and food with you. Then you start feeling dehydrated because stress can cause dehydration, then, okay, then break your fast and then make it up. That's really wise, nice. But the point is that more often than not, uh, Madrasa Islam, which also includes things like uh, most of our, our weekend crash course classes are focused on the instructions. And... I'd like you to consider yet again that if you do not have this as the foundation, this level one, uh, the other two are not going to help you as much. Okay, so now let's get into this next part. As for those who have perversity in their hearts, they are seeking to give explanation to the allegorical. And then, then by way of giving their explanations, they're seeking to create discord. This is some pretty scary language. So in fact, it's already 5.30. So now I'm wondering if we should continue or we should stop here. What would you like to do? Would you like to pause here? Because they did receive a complaint that you know, the classes are going way too long. All right, considering your stairs are, are blank, I think we'll probably stop here. <laughs> You can continue actually like that was a that was a hit cliffhanger and you're getting messages in chat to keep going. Oh snap. I didn't see this. Like perverted. I don't want to be perverted. Tell me what not to do. Okay. Oh, uh, was that allegorical question or uh... Yeah, this is true. That was actually the trick. I was asking if it was if the question was allegory or, or such. Okay. We'll actually uh, we'll go the as Tosif is saying, we'll go the Shahrazad method and we'll stop right here inshallah. And we'll continue. I'll let you try to figure out what is perversity in the heart and how that plays out here. Uh, Ahant. Um, so in terms of the these 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 levels you just you know wrote out, yeah. you know, are you saying that in terms of instructions and in terms of following the rules of the religion, you know, those need the found found the foundation of, you know, you know, I guess like Akida, you know, like, you know, uh, yep. uh, what to believe and what like priorities you should have first. Um, and like, if, and like, if so, um, you know, how would you strengthen that through reading the Quran? Okay. Okay. Nice. So, so uh, let's, let's uh, first take a step back uh, for the students of Dr. Omar. Why does he place so much focus on studying and getting a thorough understanding of foundational theology. 
And the students, Dr. Omri themselves, you don't have to feel like you have to answer uh, because like half this room of us old people were also having cis students. What do you think? If you want to answer that, you can too. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, I feel like I feel like that's because um, you know, without those you know you know core beliefs, the the outer Sharia loses its meaning and purpose. Okay. I mean, so, you know, uh, you know, like I feel like the dean is like an orange. You know, if you just you know like look at the peel, and not the divine flesh inside. I mean, it's it's you know the uh, the peel like you know like loses its it's it's purpose okay so explain the same thing to me without using a metaphor without using allegorical language <laughs> yeah right um i would say um without knowing and being certain about the existence of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his different attributes and how that should be the priority in our lives whether or not we pray, whether or not we fulfill the the, uh, the pillars of Islam is is useless if you think about it in a rational, okay. rational, in a rational okay. thing. So I would suggest the explanation you give me, you did not need that yourself uh, as an explanation for him to give you. Uh, but that's you, you know, out of respect for him and me trying to give an answer. Uh, the reason I would suggest <clears throat> is that we are in such a realm of ideas and in a pluralistic society and in a pluralistic society, both in terms of the different ways people are approaching, uh, uh, approaching Islam itself, or people inventing new ways to approach Islam, that, that he is of the opinion, and you know, I'm barely a toenail compared to his knowledge, that you need to have a very strong foundation of these basic fundamental abstract concepts. And I think there's some wisdom there. But I think what often happens is when murids hang out with each other, you know, when the followers hang out with each other, they actually lose sight of that picture and, and then get lost in the vocabulary and such. And so, so the point is that what he's doing is something very, very uh, intentional. And in the same way, uh, Neil for mentioned that you're always starting with the theology, you know, to set up a framework of thinking. So Dr. Omar often speaks in the language of frames, right? And then when you can truly digest the frame, then you'll get a good sense of the priorities of things. And so from that perspective, uh, that would be consistent with what I'm drawing here on the board. But what I'm suggesting often happens, not by what he's teaching, but when, when the Marines are with each other as they get lost in the philosophy and miss the big picture. Does that make sense, Ahant? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, he does mention uh, the concept of cognitive uh, frames. frames. Yeah, he's been talking about it for twenty years. Yeah, big, would you say the stuff. categorical ayahs of the Quran? I mean, it's it's there to like uh, the form those frames. So that is essentially what he's drawing from. Yes, and so level one would be the foundation of the theology that he's teaching you. And so what I am suggesting here is that don't let that let you lose sight of how you just simply interact with people, how you simply think of Allah. So when we were thinking about uh, what is our relationship with Allah, and when we think about how do we deal with suffering, when we think about uh, even our own worth, yesterday's discussion, 
keep the academic aspect of it to the side and first just appreciate the reality of it. And then your experience with what he's teaching will be much more rich, inshallah. And we can discuss this more offline as well. Uh, Neil, for you had a question. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, can you, uh, it, I, I'm sorry if I missed it or forgot, can you define theology? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, sorry about that. That's a good question. So when we're speaking in terms of, of uh, Islamic schools, uh, there are there are essentially three categories of, of what we would call theology. And one is aqidah, which we would translate as creed. And that's just the basic stuff you need to believe. Meaning, here's what's concrete in the unseen that you have to take as concrete. The existence of Allah, the existence of angels, things like that. Yeah. And then the second two is Usuluddin, which is looking at the philosophical underpinnings, which is sort of a bit of, of what we're talking about, what's being given with uh, Dr. Omar students. And then third would be Kalam, which we might call dialectical theology. Um, Usuluddin we might call systematic theology. But I'm even cautious about using English language terms so they don't get confused with the, with the Christian equivalents. But the idea being that Asuluddin is trying to see how does everything fit together philosophically. And Kalam is more our answers to their questions. So questions that are not necessarily coming from within the tradition or the population, but are on everyone's minds. So for example, you know, how do we reconcile uh, evolution? You know, or the, you know, does evolution happen or not? Things like that. That's coming from Christianity primarily. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. in at Hartford and seminary, they, they, like in my classes, we've had a very different definition of theology. How would you define it there? Uh, it is um, an understand. I mean, it, it's worded differently. It may not be different. Um, an understanding of who God is and yeah. uh, who human beings are and human beings relationship to God. Yeah. So, so very often when we're speaking in a Christian context and we're using the term theology, it's essentially reflection on, on, on greater reality and then how things fit in, which would include what you're speaking about. Yeah. And then, and then so uh, there's then the category of, of theology that would be connecting things with scripture, but then separate would be like Christology, just, you know, making sense of, of Isai, Islam, and Christianity with or without scripture and such. Um, Lahats. Yeah, can you can you just uh, shed some light on the the progression and transformation of kalam from the time of uh, early stages and now? Is the kalam? <laughs> um, the answer is, can I do this? No, probably not. But let me see if I can uh, a little bit for you. No, I mean, I, I only, only the high level. I'm, I don't want to look for the detail. Okay, but yeah, high level because, easy. because in the in the some some decades ago that. You know, there is a there is a thought that the kalam has been died. There is no kalam. Okay, so that's a different that's a different conversation. Uh, the that's more uh, when we're speaking of the group of people that we call the mutakalimun. It's sort of basically saying like the abstract thinkers of Islam. And and so then uh, whether we're speaking of one of the branches of Dr. Israr's thought or Iqbal's vision and such we're speaking of a call for a restart of, or a regrowth of the Mutakalimun. Uh, but so that's, 
not limited to Kalam. That would be all of this. This would be, you know, any and all abstract thought trying to make sense of Islam for the contemporary era. That's essentially what they're saying. So reconstruction of religious thought is basically saying that, all right, you know, here is uh, a proposal on how to give some foundations for rebuilding Islam completely from top to bottom or bottom to top in terms of relevance for the contemporary world. Yeah, I was, I was referring to more like, you know, in my days to the Hartford Seminary, um, that the Kalam is irrelevant. That has been claimed for some of the classes the, we took over there. For the lay person, yeah, I'd say it's almost completely irrelevant. That's like the, the famous story of, I mean, there are different uh, people this is assigned to. One is Razi, who, who jumps out and says, okay, I've come up with 10,000 proofs for the, for the existence of God. And this woman, these women are there who are spinning some clothes and they say, okay, that's something necessary for someone who has 10,000 doubts. And then in that story or in another story, uh, uh, I mean, a lot of these stories get mixed around, that Razi says, okay, the actual foundation of my faith is the iman of these old spinsters. Because they didn't need all these academic proofs. And that's sort of what I'm just... talking about with, with level yeah. one. That's sort of essentially what I'm talking about. First, you have to put your foot on the ground, your feet on the ground, and look at who you are and where you are and develop your relationships. And then you develop this thought. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Dr. Malahat. So, no, so, so my, my point is that, you know, you just mentioned like a few minutes back, you know, the, the collection of theology, the whole framework, yeah. is consists of Kalam, Usul, and, and then Creed, right? Yeah. So if the one element has been gone, among these three elements, these are the three major main component, right? So if, if the one of the component has not be present or exists, then it's going to be a problematic, right? Uh, so from I would general, say- from, from I'm sorry, to, from the general population all the way to the academia. So, so when I say that every generation of Muslims <laughs> has the responsibility of figuring out how to understand and package Islam for their generation. It's a responsibility on, on the whole community, but the real responsibility would be on the intellectual elite. Yeah. And I'm not claiming to be the intellectual elite here, but I'm saying that's the genre that I'm in in our community. Right. Can, can, I, can I add some? Please, Dr. Mahan. Yeah. And I'm sorry, Lathe, we'll get to you in a second, inshallah. Yeah. No, I think on this question of, you know, whether Kalam is relevant or not, this question has always been there. And so the early theologians and philosophers and, and the different schools that were there, um, uh, jurists, had the same debate. And many of them said that Kalam is not only superfluous, it's harmful. And the Mutakallimun are, you know, problematic Indians. people intellectually. Yeah. So that's always been there. And uh, today... One of the reasons why they say that Kalam is no longer relevant, even from an elite sense, they're referring to the one Kalam Omar, that you identified, which is it's an answer to, you know, other people's questions. Because when that Kalam is inherited as a tradition, we're basically answering questions that were raised by uh, ancient philosophy. Mm. And people don't think in those same terms today. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that Kalam per se is irrelevant. It just means that Kalam perhaps needs to be reconfigured uh, to engage contemporary questions. But nonetheless, 
even if it does that, it would still not pertain to everybody. Like it'll be only relevant for people who are uh, to whom those questions matter. So this this question of whether kalam is relevant or not, as a general question, doesn't really make any sense. You have to qualify it uh, to what you know do we intend it to pertain. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. And so I would reframe the entire question by saying that. Can we try to identify what is it that prevents people from developing in their faith? And, and through the lens of kalam, right, through the lens of abstract thought, they're saying that today there are many issues that are in the abstract realm that prevent people from getting closer to their faith. One simple point, why does life matter? So, you know, why did I give so much emphasis yesterday to your value as a person? is in response to this increasing sentiment of our era that nothing matters, especially as found among 20 year olds. You know, so literally the most common question I used to get was how do you reconcile free will and predestination? Now the most common question I get is why do I need religion or why does any of this matter? You know. And so that is more of an abstract question that has real world consequences. As an abstract question, Okay, does anything matter? That's abstract. Real world consequence is if nothing matters, then why do I need to be alive? Yeah, yeah so. my, my, my point is that, you know, I'm answering the Mahan's questions that um, I think the, the missing the one component without any classification or without getting into the relativity or relationship with the existing issues which Omar mentioned earlier about the theory of evolution and other stuff like Black Lives Matters and so far. I mean, then, you know, those are, if we don't engage this component of Kalam, uh, part of the theology and, and you know, bring our, our religion into that one, then I think we become irrelevant for the existing problems as a community. I would say that uh, I agree with everything you say. You don't need to use the word Kalam there. That makes everything sound much more complicated than it is. Meaning... It's the age-old issue of relevance to you know our time and place. So we have Yasmin in the class. I just went through. She gave this presentation uh, about about sexuality among among men in our community, and I think it was more focused on college students. And so there are a whole bunch of questions that are being raised there, you know, that you will definitely not hear in the madrasa, right? And if someone goes to to their community for answers for these questions, they're going to be shunned, even raising the word sexuality, right? And so when we're talking about uh, relevance, part of the issue of relevance is to figure out what are, what's on people's minds. And then what I'm also adding is figuring out what is preventing people from developing faith. And so some of that will be intellectual answers, abstract answers. You know, some of that might be something different. It might be literally some sort of, you know, you know uh, open oppression that's preventing people from getting closer to the law, right? But and so I'm saying, Malahat, if we say everything you said without using the word kalam, it's much easier to, to understand the point. Make sense? It's how do we make Islam relevant? And I'm saying, how do we get, uh, how do we help people get closer to Allah? Um, you're breaking up now, now I'm having trouble hearing you. Thank you. Okay, sure. Laith, I'm sorry for making you wait through all this time. What was your question? No, no, that's okay. I'm actually, uh, I'm going to hold on to my question until tomorrow. That's okay. Okay, okay sounds good, inshallah. Yeah. Uh, yes, I mean, if you want, you can post a link to your your, your YouTube thing. 
Like, why are you calling me out? Why are you, why are you picking on me? Okay. So, having said that, uh, any other last questions about uh, is anything that we're talking about today or anything in general? So, what is the, the, the key point that we're making here? So, the I itself is saying there's two types of IAs and figure out, okay, what is categorical and start there and then use the allegorical to help with the categorical, right? And the point that I'm making here is how do we figure that out? One level would be those things that relate to existence starting with just the oneness of a law, the reality of the day of judgment. And that gives us a sense of priorities to focus on and that's in the realm of our relationships. And then second is uh, uh, then getting into what is commonly categorical would be instructions. Whereas most people start with instructions. Okay, so we'll start right here, inshallah, and then we'll continue tomorrow. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. May Allah reward you all, inshallah, and we'll see you tomorrow. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.